Welcome to a brand new season of Fly on the Wall. I'm Alec. And I'm Haley. But before we get into the episode, remember to follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We have an email address, flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And finally, remember to subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcast. The subscribe button is right there. Just go click it, and it'll show up in your feed every week. We are so excited to welcome Ileana Ross Layton into the podcast. Uh, Ileana served as a congresswoman for 30 years representing Southern Florida, and this semester we're excited to have her as a fellow at GU Politics. Let's welcome Ileana to the pod. Congresswoman Ileana Ross Layton, thank you so much for coming on Fly on the Wall. We're so excited to have you. Well, thank you so much, Alec, and thank you, Haley. Very excited to be here on the Georgetown campus. I love uh, working with young students. I used to be a teacher back in the day before politics, and uh, I enjoy it. So thank you very much for this opportunity. Thanks so much. We're so excited to have you as a, as a fellow here, and that's a great lead into our first question, um, which is that you left Cuba uh, with your parents when you were very young. Um, did that influence your decision to ultimately go into politics? I think so, Alec and Haley, even though I've got to be honest, I never would have thought that I would be in politics because, sad to say, I was never involved in student government and in middle school. Back then it was called junior high. That's how old I am. Or high school or college. Not involved in in any, um, uh, in running for office or or helping run student government. I wish I had because I would have been really good, good experience. But uh, I was busy working and helping my parents in the family business and going to school and never thought about politics except, except, Alec, uh, having lost your homeland to communism, you talk about how great a country this is. They, they allowed us to come in. I mean, we had nothing. And, and the United States accepted us. Um, and we lost our homeland to communism, came to the United States. We loved this country. So we always talked about I guess what people would call politics. It was about human rights and democracy, but never really envisioned running for office. But I'm glad that I did. But we talked about big issues in my family because that's what happens when you lose when you lose the place where you're born in. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about that decision you made to first run for office in Florida? Well, thanks, Haley. I, I couldn't believe it. I had a... First, I was a teacher, then... Um, uh, my parents and I, we bought a, a small elementary school in Hialeah, which is a working class neighborhood, a real big city of uh, Miami-Dade County. And I would help the students and their parents mostly with immigration forms and they didn't understand the language. Uh, so it was totally Hispanic uh, working class neighborhood. And somebody then said to me, you know, rather than just helping Juan and Maria and Jose, why don't you run for office? You could set the policies that will help all of these people. And, and I said, what are you talking about? I mean, it, was, it never entered into my mind as something that's a, a choice and, or something that you would do as a, as a job. And I said, I don't know anything about politics. And they go, well, you know, I know that you're a Republican. There's a, a, a conference going on that teaches you how to run for office. So I talked to, I was single then, I talked to my, my parents and they thought, well, okay, if you think you, you're going to like it. My dad was excited. So we signed up for a campaign school and it was a weekend course of how to run a campaign and how to be, how to 
how to be an elected official. And since my dad and I knew nothing about it, we were just terrific. I was a terrific candidate. I've never been so disciplined as I was in my first race. And my dad was just a great campaign manager because we didn't know anything about what we were doing uh, except that we wanted an opportunity to help the community. And so, boy, I think that we were the best candidate and the best campaign manager that first run for office, which was 1982, which is probably before your parents were even born. So I was a state rep. As soon as I got elected, I met the, uh, the man who turned out to be my husband. As he was a state rep, too. He was a Democrat. I was a Republican. I won him over to the uh, pol- by political party. Then we ran again for re-election, and we both ran for the state senate as, as Republicans. In you had to have they were a single member district, so we had to keep separate houses. A couple of days with my house, a couple of days in, in his house, which was great because our opponents would always think that that was our Achilles' heel, and they would always say, you know, they're violating the Constitution because they're supposed to be. Uh, single-member districts are supposed to live in their district. And we'd say, we do, a few days here and a few days there. And so they would always, our opponents would always make that the centerpiece of their attack against us. And nobody cared <laughs> because everybody said, okay, they're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. So and he ran for the Senate. He went on to become U.S. Attorney for, for Southern District of Florida during the, the Manuel Noriega time. It was pretty incredible. And then a longtime member of Congress, Claude Pepper. You don't know him, but maybe your grandparents would. He was, he was around when Social Security was created, when Medicare was created. He was Mr. Senior Citizen. And uh, po- politicians had come and gone waiting for Claude Pepper to die. Oh, and then when he finally died, I mean, there were like vultures circling around poor Claude. And then when he died, there were so many people running for Congress. And I was excited about running for Congress because foreign policy is what I love. And mm-hmm. we like being in the State House and the State Senate, but you can't really do foreign policy. So this was a dream job, but I never thought that I would end up here. So all of the young people who are listening right now, you think you know what you're going to do, but honestly, life takes you to strange places. And so get an education, don't drop out of school, and keep yourself open to new ideas and to new experiences because you never know what's going to happen. And, you know, to that end, you sort of emphasize in Congress a lot that partisanship stops at the water's edge. Um, so wh- why do you think it is that foreign policy has remained so much more bipartisan than domestic policy? Well, at least we have that. But Alec and Haley, I don't know how long we will have that be a bipartisan issue. I'm not happy with the uh, lack of civility in, co- in Congress. When I got there, granted, it was almost 30 years ago, and the Democrats were by overwhelming majority, uh, so electing one more Republican, it really didn't matter to them that I got elected. Who cares? Republicans were always going to be a minority of minorities. But things changed. So with this change of the balance of power, things have become very uncivil. Every vote is a gotcha vote. Every opportunity to bring somebody down, you're going to do it. And even in foreign affairs, which has been, as you correctly point out, and I have always said, stops, the partisanship stops at the water's edge. I fear that that will be as uncivil as everything else that Congress does. We, We distrust members of the other party. We think 
that they're, we question their motives and their intentions, and it's just, uh, it's just wicked, and it's, that's not what people want. They want us to, to, to have some sensible policy, and I'm looking at your, uh, at your laptop, and you've got stickers that are so good, so encouraging. America, you great unfinished symphony. What a wonderful, uh, what a wonderful feeling. And to be civically engaged, I won't say what other two letters are after that. <laughs> and the Georgetown Israel Alliance. I mean, there are lots, there's lots of reasons to feel hopeful because of the young people like you. But I don't think Congress is, is quite getting the message. And we're, I don't think that foreign policy is going to be bipartisan for very much longer. We might see the end of that bipartisanship in foreign policy this year. Well, I hope not, but I want to ask you a little bit about your time in Congress and some of the policy you worked on. Um, as we talked about earlier, you are Cuban-American. Yes. You did a lot of work on Cuba. Oh, very much um, so, yes. I represent a district, uh, Haley, that is so overwhelmingly Hispanic. And not just Cubans, but Venezuelans and Colombians and Nicaraguans and Salvadorans. It's... Uh, I think that the latest number has it at almost 70% Hispanic. So it's overwhelming Hispanic, yes. I'm sorry, I interrupted you so you were saying okay, about Cuba. Okay. We just want to hear a little bit about some of those accomplishments and how you dealt with any controversies that came up around Cuba. Well, it uh, thank goodness we had great support for Cuba policy. As, as we were talking about foreign policy being a bipartisan theme, we uh, were always careful to keep Israel as a bipartisan topic, a nonpartisan topic, and we were able to bring that success to Cuba as well. We can't say that only Republicans helped us pass tough measures on Castro, no. You know, first of all, we can't impact change on the island from here. I mean, I wish that that would be possible, but it's not. You know, that time of regime change is uh, it's just not going to happen. So change has to come from within Cuba, and we hope that that change comes. However, the United States can do, uh, can tinker around the edges to make sure that the regime doesn't have the money that they need to, to uh, harass dissidents, um, uh, to jail uh, artists. Uh, they just passed a new law that goes against any kind of artist expression that isn't for the revolution. And people don't really know how harsh things can get in, in Cuba when you're a dissenter, when you're not with the regime. If you're with the regime and you're an artist, things are good because you, you, get, uh, you, know, you get taken care of because it's all about the revolution. So we were always cognizant of making Cuba policy bipartisan. And, and, and we did. And we have wonderful members of Congress who help us. Right now, I'm out of Congress. I just um, uh, retired in January. Mario Diaz-Balart is the leader in the House, but he's got Albio Ceres, but he's got Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Frederica Wilson, Alcee Hastings, Ted Deutsch, Lois Frankel, Republicans and Democrats alike. And in the, in the Senate, we have Marco Rubio, we have Rick Scott, we have Bob Menendez. We just have a good team of bipartisan uh, patriots who want to help the Cuban people and to punish the regime. And look what's happened in Venezuela now. I mean, just things are, uh, there, there's, there's room for optimism, but you know, been there 
uh, done that, and we've been optimistic about change in in Cuba. It hasn't happened, but one day it will. One day it will. So I want to also talk to you a little bit about your work uh, surrounding Israel and the Middle East. Uh, as yes. of this recording, actually, the security assistance bill that's named after you uh, just passed a major procedural hurdle in the Senate. Um, but th- there was a good deal of controversy, and Democrats were about evenly split on the measure, primarily because of one section of the bill uh, called that was originally called the Combating BDS Act. Yes. Um, do you think, in terms of bipartisanship around the issue, it was a strategic mistake to include that in the broader security assistance bill? You know, it was not my bill. I would have... Uh, well, not for you to include it, but in general. No, 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 right. It. So I didn't make it into the package deal. But I, I think it was to to move the package forward. You never know. Maybe, maybe it was more helpful because uh, more outside groups were keying in on that issue. I have the... the Two, two bills in that whole package, as you know, Alec, the uh, Israel Assistance Bill mm-hmm. and the Jordan uh, Security Bill. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're so happy. We can't believe it. I'm, I'm reading all about it. Um, yeah, just yesterday they, they uh, um, did this, all these weird motions. On the mm-hmm. vote, on the motion to invoke cloture, on the motion to proceed, you know, upon reconsideration, they have such strange things. And all it means is that, yes, we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to uh, uh, we're going to be voting. So we're, it's called the Middle East Strengthening America's Security in the Middle East Act. But your question is right on the money. Should BDS have been included? It 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 put people in a difficult spot. And uh, uh, I think it was in the end. First of all, I had nothing to do with it being included, but I'm glad it was included. It's an important issue. You're right. We don't want to make Israel to be a partisan issue. I agree with you. But in the end, I think it's going to be beneficial. And it just got caught up with a lot of presidential politics because at the time of its rollout, certain candidates were declaring themselves as candidates for the presidency right. so early. And uh, and so then it got mired in that political intrigue. But in the end, it's going to work out because the boycott divestment uh, sanction movement against Israel is discriminatory, and uh, and I hope that uh, that we're able to pass the bill. And you've also traveled a number of times to the Middle East uh, with fellow members of Congress. Can you tell us a little bit about those trips and how they influenced your approach to policymaking? Well, thank you for that question, Haley. No, I know that congressional travel, uh, those junkets, are looked upon very badly, but um, uh, they are good because you get to go to those countries, meet with the country's leaders. Sure, you can meet with them in D.C. or Milwaukee or anywhere, but, but when you're there and on the scene and on the ground, it's when you really get a sense of how, how, how much they need America and how much America needs them. For example, when you go to Israel, and I always encourage people to go to Israel, you get a sense of how small this country is mm-hmm. and how it's surrounded just a few miles, just literally a few miles from wherever you are, are Israel is surrounded by her enemies or people who want to use those lands to launch attacks against Israel. So being there gives you that closeness to understand the issue. And that's why those trips are important. But speaking of trips, it reminds me of, of this great... Uh, let me see if I, I brought it because it's just so terrific. The onion, which is... You know, it's it's a it's a good satirical site for for old farts like me. 
bad, <laughs> but uh, uh, President Trump had denied Nancy Pelosi's um, CODEL, which is Congressional Delegation Trip, the opportunity to use a government plane, a military plane, to go to Afghanistan, which is, of course, what you need to do because it's a war zone. You could go commercially. But uh, anyway, so once he released the details of her trip, or what he called the seven-day excursion, he called it a public relations tour. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> anyway, the Onion publishes this great photo. Of course, it's a spoof, and it says, it, it's a picture of Nancy Pelosi in a bathing suit, and she's swimming with a frantic look on her face, surrounded by ocean. And it says, defiant Pelosi begins swimming to Afghanistan after Trump denies use of government plane. <laughs> and then some guy who doesn't understand humor, he writes, it's landlocked. <laughs> my gosh, it's, it's, it's humor. Uh, anyway, so that's, uh, I think going on these trips is very important. Yes, I'm sure that some of them are, are junkets and, and people who are listening to me now probably think it's a total waste of taxpayers' money. But you really get a sense of, of what... Um, how difficult Israel has it, for example. Mm -hmm. When you go there and you actually hold the missiles that, uh, that uh, terrorists have launched to, to Israel, uh, to small towns all around her border. So I think trips are worthwhile, and, uh, but I'm not swimming to Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that I actually visited Israel this past summer and, ah, and saw some of my family who lives there. So Right, so really, you really yeah. get a sense... You talk to real people, and they tell you this is what really happened, and and you go to a school where the kids have to scramble downstairs, uh, and and fifteen seconds notice when the when the bomb alarms go off. Ay ay ay. Definitely. So we're gonna switch gears a little bit um, and talk a little bit about the future um, of your party. Uh, so what changes over the course of your time in Congress do you think the Republican Party went through, and where do you see it going? Well, from I see the same changes in the Democratic parties I see in the Republican Party. We become more in the extremes, or maybe the extremes are getting more attention. So the Democratic Party, from what people see in, uh, you know, in a generalized sense, is becoming more of the left wing, and the Republican Party is becoming more of the right wing element of the party. And all of that is a shame because most people are somewhere in the middle. You know, they'll agree with you on some issues, disagree with you on other issues, but they're, they're a little more... Um, a little more moderate in their views than some of the members of Congress. Or it could be that the more extreme views are the ones that get on television. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to know. But um, because of gerrymandering, because of the way that the districts are drawn up, you will have Republicans who are come from what we call R plus 20. That means that they've got a 20-point advantage over the Democrats. The R plus 20 district a Republican is going to win, basically, almost no matter who it is, unless it's somebody like Roy Moore, uh, you know, who deserves to lose. And in an, and a D plus 20, you know, it's going to be a Democrat is going to win. So when you get more extreme views and you cater to, to the folks who have those extremist views, I would, I would like more districts to be like my district. I have one-third Republican one-third Democrat, one-third independent. And it forces you to look at the other person's point of view because you can't rely on what you have. What is your base voter? 
everybody, at every every person, no matter what party, will be your base vote. It makes you a better better member of Congress, because then you find out, ah, oh, you know, I, I'm I'm a Democrat, but I like some Republican ideas. Well, I'm a Republican, but some Democrat ideas I like. It it it, it helps you to see things in a in a fairer, more balanced uh, point of view. But most districts are not like mine. In m- districts like mine, uh, they can only be drawn up by independent commissions or, uh, or, or, some, or some judge because no party will approve those kinds of districts anymore. Great. So statistically, there's an imbalance between liberal and conservative women in Congress. Yes. Um, what do you think needs to change to bridge that gap? Well, yes. Now, shame on us Republicans that, that we only have one new Republican woman in the House. And I don't know. I've lost count. How many are, new Democratic women are there in the House? There's a lot of them. So now we're at, I think, overall women in the House and Senate, 131. Uh, when I got elected during the Fred Flintstone era, I was one of 30, I believe, one of 30. Maybe your listeners can look that up for me. Mm-hmm. In 1989, how many women were in the House and Senate? I think that they were 30 or 31. I was one of 31. And now there's 131. So isn't that amazing? But overwhelming majority of them are Democrats. In the House, for the First time, this was amazing, terrible for Republicans. I hope our party leaders see it as such. When I left Congress, we went, uh, there were 23 women. Now there are 13 Republican women. We went from 23 to 13. We actually went down. It's the lowest level, uh, lowest number of women in the Republican Party in the House since World War II. Everywhere women are more engaged in business and everywhere in politics. And yet in the Republican Party, there are less women than before. That is shocking. So I like what wonderful young leaders like Elise Stefanik, a conservative uh, congresswoman from upstate New York, she's got this group, I think it's called something like Engage, but she wants to stimulate uh, interest in, in young Republican women to run for office. And our leaders have got to at least understand that there is a problem. You can't fix a problem unless you recognize there's a problem. I don't know that they get it. They're good people, they're wonderful leaders, but we need to have women be the, the force for good in the Republican Party and be more engaged. So let's see if something good can come out of this because this is as low as we can go. Can we go any lower? Oh my God. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> on an optimistic note, you were pretty much spot on with the number of women in 1989. There were 31. Uh, 31. Oh my gosh. Alec. Anyway. <laughs> two wow. in the Senate, 29 in the House. And I, for the record, I didn't know that. I Googled it. Well, wow, that is great. It, so, so 31. Yeah. So in 1989, there were 31. And I think that there are 131 now. Maybe you can Google that. How yeah, many women? Check on it, how many yeah. women in the <laughs> House and Senate now? But 131, so just think, in less than 30 years' time, the growth, wow, from 31 to 131. I don't want to keep repeating that number. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, it's phenomenal. It is just amazing. And it's because 
of, uh, of young leaders getting engaged. And I'm really happy, whether you're a Republican or Democrat, to see a, a, a woman in a position of leadership and leading a committee and, and, and doing all, it's just great. It's just a good role model for, for, for youngsters to see that they can be anything they want. And just before we wrap it up, um, since you are a fellow here this semester, and we're so yeah, excited to have so you on excited. campus. Uh, we just wanted to give you a chance to tell all the students listening about your discussion group. When is it? What's the topic? Well, thank it. you so much, Alec and Haley. And I know that you've got you've got some good people who are going to be fellows too. So whatever you decide to do is is fine. But I want to tell you that mine is called Congressional Politics and American Foreign Policy. And uh, as you know, there are just eight discussion groups. Time goes by so fast. So mine is Tuesdays from uh, 4 to 5.30. 4 to 5.30. It's Congressional Politics and American Foreign Policy. We're going to be talking about who's in charge of foreign policy. And then every week uh, we discuss a different topic. So there are no good or bad answers. There are no right or wrong answers. One week we're going to talk about the United Nations Another week, the Iranian, the politics of the Iranian nuclear deal, mm. um, Israel policy, uh, Cuba, the war powers, war on terror, covert and intelligence gathering. So please come Tuesday, 4 to 5.30. I will come the first week. I'm going to bring croquetas. Mm. Uh, and those are good, good <laughs> fried dough stuff. Uh, I'll come with a different Cuban pastry every week. I know that food is a, is a big uh, thing in these discussion groups. I can't afford to have uh, barbecue dinners, but I'm going to bring a different Cuban pastry every every week, and, and uh, then we'll vote to which one which one is the best. But come if you can, four to five thirty. Congressional politics and American foreign policy. Your opinion is as valid as everybody else's. I just want to give you a little more background about before we we decide and vote on on each of these uh, issues at the end of the class. Well, Congresswoman, thank you so much. It sounds like a great discussion group. I know I'll be there. Alec, thank you so much. And Haley, we're not going to put you on the spot. You do whatever you wish. <laughs> I'll try to come if I can. Well, yes. I don't want to come for the croquetas. <laughs> thank you, thank so you so much, guys. Thank podcast. you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode of Season 5. And remember, before you go, to follow us on social media. We are at FlyOnTheWallPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we are on iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever else you get your podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We'll show up in your feed every week. And last but not least, send us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to keep the discussion going, Ileana has a discussion group from 4 to 5.30 on Tuesdays this semester, with the topic being Congressional Politics and Foreign Policy. Hope to see you there.